0: Well, Good morning, church. It's always good uh, for us to be together. I, I want to take just a moment uh, to invite you again uh, to consider joining us on Friday night as we have a family worship night in our student ministry center. Uh, we, as a, as a family, my family, we were able to be a part of that not last year because everything was on hold last year because of COVID, but the year before And it was a real blessing for us as a family to be able to gather together, uh, to be a part of those different activities that that have been prayed over and planned carefully to help your family kind of get into that mindset of coming into Easter Sunday. Uh, And then obviously extravaganza is always fun to be at. It's a blessing. And we want to be a church where our neighbors know that we care about them, that we love them with the love of the Lord. And this is a simple way for us to do that. And so we we want everyone who can to come help us pull that off and to be a part of it. And then obviously as we think about Easter Sunday, uh, we we do this really simple thing where we we bring flowers and we place them in the cross to, to represent our confidence that God is able to take some of the darkest, ugliest things we have to go through and he transforms them through resurrection power, into something beautiful. And and it's just something that we can all be a part of, and, and we gather together as God's people celebrating in that power. And so I just want to encourage you, be a part of that. Pray about it this week. Think about the ways that you can, can prepare your heart, uh, not just as individuals, but as families and friends, how we can get ourselves ready for that celebration. Every Sunday is in many ways, right? Ways for us to, to gather together to, to celebrate the, the resurrection power of Jesus. But Easter uh, is, is one of those moments each year where we're able to do that in a special way. So I just want to invite you, especially if you're visiting this morning, we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, come back next Sunday and, and help us celebrate the, the power of Easter together. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this time that we have to gather as your people around your word. We pray that you through the power of your Holy Spirit would help each one of us hear exactly what it is you you need us to hear and help us to not only listen but to live out what it is we hear you calling us to be and to do as your people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So it's always it's always tricky on Palm Sunday where you're trying to focus on this amazing part of Jesus's life story where his followers on a Sunday, they they gather together as he's coming into Jerusalem and, and they want to welcome him as a king because they believe that he is a king. Now that obviously throws him into a direct conflict with the religious leaders who he's been dealing with, not just on that day, but it's been it's been building up for three years throughout Jesus' ministry. He has this knack for causing the religious leaders to feel unsettled and threatened. It's it's hard to hold this parade in our hearts and our minds. And then a couple of songs later we're gathered around the, the Lord's Supper table, which which reminds us of the fact that it's a last supper. Uh, And and so how do we kind of hold in our minds and our hearts everything that's going on in just a few short days? It's it's a lot taking place in the last week of Jesus' earthly life. You know, the parade's on Sunday. Then you get to Monday, and he goes to the temple, and he's he's not just talking to people, but he sees what's happening in the temple courts. He gets really frustrated because he sees not only religious leaders, but merchants and other people of, of power and standing and means taking advantage of, of worshipers who are desperate to encounter God at the temple. Uh, they're, they're desperate to encounter healing and grace, and, and they're kind of swooping in and taking advantage of, of the least of these, right, of the most vulnerable. And Jesus can't, he can't stand by and watch it happen, and so he gets angry, he gets frustrated, he starts to raise his voice, and he's overturning tables, and, and you can imagine, if the religious leaders didn't like the parade on Sunday, you know they didn't like him overturning tables and running out the merchants and all the people from, from the temple on Monday, and then on Tuesday they try to lay a trap for him, and they're, they're going to challenge him, they're going to confront him. You'd think they'd know by now, every single time the religious leaders try to challenge Jesus in public, they're the ones who end up getting embarrassed. But they think somehow they're going to manage to pull it off this time, except for they're wrong again. They embarrass themselves again. And so they've, they've taken all they, they can handle. So by Wednesday, we don't know much about Wednesday of that week, but we do know that they reach out to Jesus' follower, Judas. Judas, who, who's been with Jesus as much as anybody, but he's also struggling with disappointment. You get the sense that Judas wants Jesus to lead some kind of military operation, right? He, he wants him to overthrow the Roman Empire. And, and what better time to do that than the week leading up to Passover, where there might be the most able-bodied men gathered to, together in, in that city. That if maybe they worked together, they could start some kind of, of social revolution. That's what Judas wants Jesus to do. But he's, he's beginning to understand more and more that Jesus isn't going to do that. That's not how Jesus is going to change the world. And so Judas is receptive when these religious leaders reach out to him and they hatch a plan together. They're going to figure out when Jesus is going to be alone, when he's going to be the most vulnerable, and they're going to figure out how to arrest him and accuse him. Even though he's not trying to incite violence, they're going to accuse him. Because they know that if they can convince the local Roman leaders that Jesus is a danger, a threat to the empire, well, they're going to get their way. And on Thursday, they gather together, Jesus and his disciples, to to celebrate the Passover. And they are reminded as they gather together around that table of the story of God delivering the people from bondage in Egypt and, and how God has continued to be that kind of God to them, that he loves them in a way that sets them free. And as they have that meal together, Jesus looks up and he notices, in the Gospel of John, he, he looks up and he notices that, that all of them need someone to serve them. They all need someone to wash their feet. But, but apparently, whoever was supposed to get a servant there to take care of that uh, dropped the ball. And so there's nobody there to do that. Jesus just immediately gets up and he starts to serve without saying anything. And, and he's serving in such a way, he's doing a task that, that especially Peter, but, but probably every disciple in the room feels like it's beneath him. He shouldn't have to do this. Somebody else should do this. But no, Jesus keeps insisting because he needs them to understand Even though he's tried to explain it to them, even though he's tried to show it to them before, he needs them to be clear on what shape his love takes in life. The shape of Jesus' love is service. It's meeting the needs of others. It's, it's, it's doing whatever needs to be done to help somebody else understand that they're seen and they're cared about. And Jesus wants to model that. And the disciples are a little resistant to that. I think not only because they think it's beneath Jesus, but because if they're being really honest, they kind of feel like it's beneath them. And if he's their leader, if he's the one who's modeling for them the kind of life that they've, they've basically agreed to live as his followers, well, they don't want him to do something that they're not willing to do. Jesus knows that, and he insists upon it. He says, no, this is who I came to be. This is who I'm calling you to be. Take a look. Take it in. Understand it. This this is what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. That, That somehow this simple set of tools, a basin and a towel, might be one of the most important images for us to hold in our, in our hearts and in our minds as we think about what kind of life are we trying to live. It's a life that's lived in service to others. Well, in John, Jesus has a, a habit of talking a lot longer than he does in the other gospel accounts. Now, I, I think that may say more about, you know, Matthew and Mark and Luke Uh, than, than it does about Jesus. I think they're kind of wanting to focus on what Jesus is doing more than what he's saying. But John, he wants to make sure that we get to overhear this extended conversation that takes place after Jesus serves. After the meal is over, he starts to talk about who he is and who God is. He starts to talk at great length about who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit's going to come into their lives after Jesus gives his life away for the sake of the world. And they're confused. They, they don't really understand it. They don't grasp it. But Jesus is trying to help them understand it. He's trying to help them see who he wants to be in relationship to them, who God wants to be in relationship to them. This, this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit, this advocate, this This aspect of God who is as close to us as our own hearts. Jesus wants them to understand all of that because time is running out. This is Thursday, right? It's about to be Friday. And on Friday, well, the cross. The cross is on Friday. And we're not going to look at all of the aspects of that conversation this morning. But we are going to focus on this moment when Jesus isn't just talking about God the Father and himself and God the Holy Spirit. But he starts to talk about who he wants his disciples to be, who he wants us to be if we're going to be his true followers. It makes sense, right? That is, he tries to define himself and God, that he would also seek to define us and our relationship to him and to God and the Holy Spirit. So in, in your Bibles, open up to John chapter 15. We'll, we'll read together beginning in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You were already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Okay, i got to be honest with you here. For for the vast majority of my life, this has to to, to be the metaphor that Jesus uses to describe himself. And this has to be my least favorite. It just never related to it. I grew up in a city in, in California. I, I grew up in Northern California. There were actually farms not all that far away from where I grew up. I just never spent any time on them. You know, my parents really didn't try to, to grow much of anything around the house. And I I have carried on that legacy in my own life. And so, you know, you're trying to I like the idea of being a light on a hill. I like the idea of of trying to fish for people. I mean, I'm not a a gifted fisherman, but at least there's something happening there. This idea that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches, it just just has never really worked for me. Now, last year, basically almost a year ago, Lauren and I, if you go back to that time of the year, that was kind of when everything was first shutting down. Right, and so we were not able to go and do the kinds of things we were used to doing, and so we turn to each other, and and we have a horrible track record of keeping plants alive in our home. In in fact, I feel like if plants could speak, they would apologize when we show up and buy them, and take them home, like we're never going to see we're never going to see him again, right? Like we're the place plants go to die. But we're sitting there and we turn to each other. I don't remember which one had this genius idea first, but one of us said, you know what? We should try to grow a garden in the backyard. So we go to the store and we get the, you know, the wood for the garden boxes. All of this is well outside of my skill set as a human being. All of this. We get the, the wood for the boxes, we get the soil. And you know, you're buying what, two cubic feet at a time? It's like 20 or 30 pounds. I'm I'm not. I don't know at what point you get old enough to think gardening is a good idea, and then you're also old enough to be sore after making a garden, but that's the age I am, right? And so we built this garden box, we planted all these seeds, and, you know, if you've ever done this, you, you do all this work, and then you have to wait. And you're watering in the morning and the evening, but you're going out to the garden a lot more often than that, right? Because you're just, ho- you're just waiting for the moment. You're going to see these small slender shoots come up through the soil. And I don't remember how long it took, but looking at it several times a day, finally, plants started to break through. And you would have thought that something miraculous was happening in our backyard based on our reaction to it. You know, it was like, come here, Lauren, you got to see this. You got to, you know, we're getting on our hands and knees to look to see. That's how small these plants were, we had, get the girls, girls, come here, look at this, look at what we did. <laughs> I didn't do anything, right? And, and then they start to grow, and then eventually you actually have to eat the vegetables you grow, even if you don't like vegetables, because that would be wasteful, right? So we started having squash and, and cucumber and zucchini and green beans and things that, again, I, I just felt like, these taste better because they're mine. I, I think I was fooling myself, but that's how I, I found a way to eat them, Right? Okay, in fact, it went so well last last year, we built two more boxes in the last two days. So I think one day I got 14 bags of soil and the next day I got 12. I mean, I could barely move right. It's why I'm not moving much while I'm preaching. I am hurting everywhere. <laughs> okay, so now as an experienced gardener of one season, I like this image way more than I used to. To all you college kids, I'm sorry. I know it's still a boring image, but just hang with me. But Here's the thing. All the excitement in gardening is being the gardener. And Jesus makes it clear uh, you're not the gardener. God is. You're not even the best part of the plant. Jesus is. You're a branch. That's who you are be the best branch you can be. It is really difficult to be excited about this, right? But Jesus is using this language on purpose. And we would do well if we could stop just long enough to think about why is he choosing the image of gardening? Why is he talking about a gardener and a vine and branches? And and I think it's that too often, we think our primary task as followers of Jesus is we've got to figure out how to somehow engineer, both in our lives and in the church, like exponential growth, right? We just got to figure out how to make growth happen. But just as is true in gardening, right, that's growth is something you, you can kind of create some conditions for it, but you can't make it happen, I mean, when you grow something and you start to feel like that's an accomplishment, you're kind of missing the power behind what gives a plant life. It's always God. The life of the disciple is not us trying to figure out how we're going to grow. It's how to partner with God so that God can help us grow. That is distinctly different. That's a different kind of prayer life. It's a different kind of awareness of how God is present in our lives and wanting to work in our lives, wanting to work through our lives. There's this sense that Jesus is trying to say, you know, you don't just need me at the beginning. You you need me present in your life every step of the way. If you want to go on living, you've got to be connected to me. Our primary task is not to figure out how we're going to grow on our own. Our primary task is to stay close to Jesus and trust that staying close, remaining in that kind of relationship with Jesus, it always works. Jesus, Jesus isn't just our source of life. Jesus is also the sustainer of our lives. Jesus doesn't just make our lives possible. Jesus makes our lives meaningful. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just be alive. I want to have a life that has meaning and purpose and direction. And far too often, I try to find all that in myself rather than consistently, day by day, moment by moment, relying on staying connected to God to bless me, to to shape my life in that way because of my nearness to him. You know, as we think about the story of Jesus in the Gospels, we are reminded time and again that Jesus doesn't only give us life. Jesus wants to teach us the best way to live life, and he models that in relationship to other people. And the way Jesus relates to other people is he's constantly trying to find new ways to to help them. He wants to reach them with the life-giving love of God that that maybe they haven't experienced. or, Or if they have experienced it, they don't know that's what it is. You know, Jesus has this ability to listen to the people no one else really seems to want to listen to. He, he reaches out and takes care of people that no one else seems to have the patience to take care of. He sacrifices, not just once, but over and over and over again. He sacrifices his wants and his desires so that he can be there for someone in their moment of greatest need, their moment of darkness and despair. And it's great for us to know these stories, right? It's, it's so important for us as Christian people to open up our Bibles and to read these, these examples that, that are there for us to think about and reflect on. But here's the thing. As good as it is for us to learn about Jesus, what he's trying to say here in John 15 is it's even better for us to learn from Jesus. Right? That Scripture's not intended to just be some sort of, inspired historical account of who Jesus used to be 2,000 years ago, but it's a a kind of training manual to help our our eyes, the hearts of our, our eyes, to be opened up to the ways that Jesus is still present and around us and trying to teach us, trying to show us who we're supposed to be, to help us see who He's sending us to. And and the only way we're going to shift from just learning about Jesus to learning from Jesus is if we are disciplined enough to stop and slow down so that we can learn how to pay attention to the ways that Jesus is close to us. So that we can pay attention to the ways that Jesus is right here with us. The way Jesus puts it is the only way it's going to happen is if we learn how to remain. And remaining, staying still so that God can work on us in our relationship with Jesus, that's not an easy thing for us to do. Or at least I'll confess it's not an easy thing for me to do. I mean, don't you feel like, especially as as it feels like we're beginning more and more to come out of the limitations of this pandemic, that the whole world is suddenly inviting you back to various pursuits and activities in in your life it 's like it's just pressure's been building up all, all the trips and all the the things that we wanted to do, all the places we wanted to go, you know I know, I know that, that, that those voices we hear them over and over again and, and coming from all kinds of different directions. I mean, even if you don't feel like you've got a lot of places to go and people to see, you've got a lot of stuff to watch, whether it's on Netflix or your your favorite news channel, right? There's just constantly stuff going on, distracting us, calling us to to want more, to desire more, to try to do more. And, And in John 15, Jesus you know, again, he could pick different metaphors. And, and there's a part of me, when you think about the pace of our culture, the pace of our lives, the way the world kind of calls us to more and more and more, you know, it'd be like, Jesus, maybe you should have compared us to, like, busy bees that are trying to fly all over the place. And, you know, that's part of the, the whole agrarian metaphor thing. You could call us to pollinate everything in sight. Or, or, you know, there's this image in Proverbs that says, you know, look, look to the hardworking ant and make sure that you're industrious and you're, you're building up something for a rainy day. That is not, we're not compared in John 15 to busy bees or hardworking ants. We're compared to plants and not even a good part of the plant. Be the best branch you can be. Now, Jesus isn't doing that on accident. He's wanting to catch our attention with how still and quiet plants are. Right? They're not, last time, again, I'm not an expert. I mean, I only have one successful season of gardening behind me. I'm pretty sure the reason plants grow is because they stay where they are. They're not running around in a hundred different directions. They stay where they are. And this slow but steady pace of how a garden develops, Jesus is saying that can teach us a lot about the kind of time and attention it takes for God to grow our souls. I think you and I assume that development, our personal development, is inevitable. In other words, it's going to happen. But Jesus says No. Your spiritual growth, your spiritual development, it's it's only something that's going to happen when God's intentionality and the way God is paying attention to you, that you reflect that intentionality back to God and you start paying attention to God. That's when spiritual growth happens. That's when we develop our souls. Carefully cultivated garden produces much more fruit than an uncultivated garden. And the same is true of an uncultivated life. And I think if we're going to be really honest this morning, too many of us have too many areas in our lives that are uncultivated. We're not paying attention. We're so distracted that we've got entire fields in our souls and our hearts that are just running wild. That, That means there's a lot of green stuff growing but there's not a lot of fruit being produced it's true in the gardening world Jesus says it's true in the spiritual world just because there's runaway growth or you look at it and there's a whole lot of things going on doesn't mean any of it's actually working towards producing what God wants to produce in you and and through you in the lives of other people you know, we have got so many pursuits we're chasing after, so many activities. Sometimes I feel like we, we don't realize the danger of having all those opportunities and all those pursuits is if we don't have an overarching plan to make sure that with all of those, those chances and opportunities around us that, that we're taking the opportunities, that we're taking the chances that, that will help us become more and more the kind of person that we say we want to be, that we lose track Of who we're becoming in the midst of all of our busyness and all the things that we're doing and all the things that are happening to us. We lose track of of who we're turning into. So we've got, it's like we've got too, too many options and not enough structure. Too many choices and not enough commitment. It's like there's a ton of movement but not nearly enough meaning. Jesus knows this about us. So I think from a place of love and concern, he, he, he tries to tenderly force us to face it by talking about he's the vine, and we're the branches, and, and God the Father is this gardener. And what does that mean about who we are and who we're becoming? And, and he doesn't just leave it in kind of this abstract, you know, fuzzy, poetic metaphor and, and then just focus on the parts of that what might you know, make us feel comfortable, he actually tends to focus on the part that's most challenging because see, in order for God to cultivate us if if he's going to be a good gardener, he's got to do the two basic things that good gardeners do right The first thing is he's got to feed us he's got to nourish us, fertilize us, right but the other thing that a good gardener does is prune, cut away the the dying and the diseased parts of a plant so that the overall plant can thrive and grow and do what it's supposed to do. Now, I think all of us would line up for God to feed us and nourish us. I think most of us would be tempted to run away when he takes out the pruning shears and says, hold still. You know, Bradley mentioned, let us present... Our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The problem with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar when it starts to hurt. Right? That's the challenge. And Jesus, when he says remain, when when he says stay still, that involves learning how to stay still not only when God is feeding us and nourishing us, but also when God is taking things away from us that aren't good for us because he loves us. And it leads, I think, to a question that, that you and I are going to have to ask. Two, actually, two questions. They're kind of parts of the same thing. And, and only you can answer it for yourself, right? But the question is basically, what do you need more of in your life uh, to grow into your best self? What do you need less of in your life so that you can grow into your best self? Because all of us are open to things that help us become more and more like Jesus and we, we realize it in the moment. Or maybe we reflect on it later and we think about, okay, this, this is helping me become more and more the kind of person I know God wants me to be. But then in the same way, we all open our lives up to, we all chase after things that are destructive. Things that are not helping us. They may seem good at first. They they may be attractive to us in the moment. But as we reflect later, we realize, you know what, when I watch that, when I participate in this, It doesn't help me feel closer to God. It doesn't help me feel like I'm living out the the kind of life God wants me to live out in relationship to myself and the other people that I share life with. Maybe I need to stop feasting on spiritual junk food. Maybe I need to realize that this isn't actually helping me. Now, in order to, to live with this kind of intentionality, We're going to have to join God in cultivating our souls. God's the one who does it. God's the one who, through the Holy Spirit, powers it. But here's what Jesus is trying to warn us when it comes to this whole plant image. God will allow us to resist him. God will allow us to be a bad plant that runs away from the gardener. I know that's where the metaphor starts to break down, right? I've never had a plant do that, and if it did, I'd be done gardening, right? But you can be a bad plant, a plant that that refuses to allow God to ever take something out of your life that's hurting you, that's destroying you. Because in our world, giving up anything feels like giving up altogether. Giving up anything feels like suffering, and if it is suffering, it's sacrificial suffering because we're, allowing, we're letting go and we're letting God cut out or take out things in our life that, that are threatening our lives. The unreflected life is the uncultivated life. If you never stopped to ask this kind of question... You're not open in the way God wants us to be. We're not not open to this transformation process that takes time and effort for us to step out of the way enough. Not to run away, but to spiritually step out of the way enough in our own souls to let God do what he has intended to do for us from the very beginning. Which is help us not just feel like we're grafted onto that vine, but that Jesus' life is becomes our life now here, here's the other thing that I think is really important Jesus makes this clear he doesn't just talk about pruning he says why God is cultivating us right he says why, why do we have to go through pruning it is so that we can bear fruit see our job we're we're the kind of plant God wants us to be we produce a crop we're not just ornamental right we're functional We're supposed to feed somebody else. So so God makes it clear here in this imagery, right, that it's not enough for us to just realize we're a plant and then try to be the most beautiful plant we can be. It's to try to be the most productive. Now, again, when I say the word productive in our culture, you hear you doing a lot of things. No, 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 no. This is us allowing God to work through us. And it's not just any kind of fruit. It's a very specific kind of fruit. And the Apostle Paul helps us be clear about this, right? When you go to Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, Paul says, using the same imagery that Jesus is using here in John 15, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let let us keep walking with the Spirit. Okay, we're plants that walk. Well, yeah, as long as you walk with the Spirit. Right? The metaphor is just, it gets layers and layers and layers to it. Now, here's the thing. This This isn't a grocery list where you can pick and choose which one of these fruits of the Spirit you'd like to grow in. Right you don't get to tell me that I get to take patience and you get to take you know kindness. Right? This whole list together is the fruit of the spirit. So I want you to look at it, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now it's interesting that Paul says against such things there is no law, which means he's not just talking about you and I experiencing the fruit of the spirit inside ourselves. Laws can't regulate what's going on inside of you. Laws regulate your behavior. So by definition, what he's saying here in this imagery of of fruit that we're producing because, because we're allowing God to cultivate us, he's saying this leads to behavior. In other words, this isn't just your experience of the fruit of the Spirit. It's what other people should experience whenever they spend time with you. Or another way to think of it is if someone were to pull your friends and coworkers aside and ask them to come up with words to describe who you are to them that if we're allowing God to cultivate us the way he he longs to these are the words they would reach for it's not just something that's going on inside of us it's something that's going on it's starting inside of us but it's supposed to produce something in us and through us so that other people can taste the fruit of the Spirit and long to share in that life. So really, what I want us to wrestle with as followers of Jesus this week is not just some open-ended phrase like your best self, right? Because we tend to define that any way we want to, right? But, but your best self... The the you that God created you to be, the you that Jesus is trying to teach you how to be, it's a version of you that produces this in how you interact with everybody else around you. This is what it looks like. So the question isn't, what do I need more in my life in order to just be my best self, or what do I need less in my life? No, it's, what do I need more of in my life so that my life bears the fruit of the Spirit? What do I need less of in my life? So that I can bear the fruit of the Spirit. There's probably some things you're watching that you should stop watching. There's probably some ways you and I are spending our time. We need to we cut it out. It's not helping us grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If there's one thing that this world is sorely lacking in, it's self-control. And I would love it if the world decided the best place to learn that is at church. The best place to experience peace and gentleness and kindness is among us because this is a field. And there's supposed to be this crop that's coming out of our lives. And and it's not that we can engineer or strategize our way to making that happen It's that we have to realize the real danger in all this is that we're going to get in the way of it happening. Get out of the way. Reach for those things that help you be more like Jesus. Get away from those things that you know aren't helping you in any way be more like Jesus. Be honest. Because, brothers and sisters, your life isn't going to become more and more like Jesus on accident. It's only going to become more and more like Jesus on purpose. We need a plan. The plan is slow down and hold still and let God work. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, I just want to encourage you this week, answer these questions. Give them to God. Pray about them and ask for God to give you more of what you need and to cut out what you don't need. It's not about what we accomplish. It's about who we're turning into. Let's stand together and sing now.